We return this morning in our study of the book of Revelations, and we have come to the place in the book of Revelations that we're looking at the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Last Sunday morning, we read about the church at Ephesus and how Jesus chose that one as the first church for Him to speak to. We read in chapter 1 that Jesus is walking among the churches. And I believe today the same message that John the Revelator received about Jesus in chapter 1 and the seven churches of Revelation apply to us today that Jesus is walking among the churches. He sees us. He knows us. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. Last week we talked about the church of Ephesians and and how in Ephesus how uh, Jesus saw them. He saw their strengths. He saw the things that they had done well and, and uh, they had excelled at. And, and it's not that He doesn't see our very best efforts. God knows where we're at. He knows what we need. He knows and He sees us so very clearly. And then also... Uh, He had something to share with the church at Ephesus that wasn't easy for them to hear, I'm sure. He saw in the church at Ephesus a need. They had lost their first love. They had turned away from the the passion that that they once had. And Jesus calls them to repent and come back and turn. And in this church at Ephesus, we have Jesus speaking to us. And in all the churches... What does Jesus speak to me? What does Jesus speak to you? What does Jesus speak to the churches in what He says? That church in Ephesus was a church that John the Apostle had apparently lived in that city. And he was their pastor. And then he went on to record on the island of Patmos this vision that is called the book of Revelation. Remember the influence of John throughout this time and and how much he cared about Ephesus and all the churches. In fact, John the Apostle, the last living one, was the, the leader of all these churches, kind of the overseer of all these churches that we have in the seven churches of Revelation. Well, this morning we're going to move on to the, to the second church. The church is called Smyrna, present day the church at, would you go on to that next slide, please? The, the present day uh, city of uh, Smyrna is called Izmir. Uh, these seven uh, stories are told in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And now if you go to the next one, we'll, we'll see uh, a map that I put up last week so that we kind of see what is happening here. Right here, last week, the first story, the first church Uh, This was written to the church at Ephesus. And then the second one is the church at Smyrna. And that's the one that we're going to focus on today. Just up the coast from Ephesus of the Aegean Sea. Today is called the city of Izmir. Izmir, Turkey. It's the second largest city in Turkey. So it's a city that has continuously been inhabited. And it's been a large city in Turkey. It has been destroyed a couple of times by earthquake, but it always was rebuilt. Oh, would you join me in reading these verses about the church at Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. 
I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The church at Smyrna, the church of persecution. The city of Smyrna, as you looked at that map a a moment ago, was just north of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus does not exist today as a large city, but more ruins and a place that people come to to uh, look at the ruins. But it's different in Smyrna. Smyrna continued and is a large city today, right up the coast from where uh, uh, Ephesus was, the coast of the Aegean Sea, about 35 miles uh, is Smyrna from Ephesus. Uh, This city was a very large city even then. Uh, It was a wealthy city. It was a Roman port city. Uh, It was a city of a lot of ships that came in and out from all over the Roman Empire. It was an important key area uh, to the Roman Empire and its control over this land area that includes the seven churches. uh, many things about it. The Greek poet Homer, it was his birthplace and, and where he lived. It was a city with many features to it or places. It had a large stadium. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It had a large library. Uh, it had a theater and a gymnasium. It was, it was decked out as one of the greatest cities controlled by the Roman Empire at the time. There are also was in this large city of Smyrna, a number of Roman, Greek Roman temples that had been built to worship their many gods. They were large. They were impressive. They were beautiful. They showed the, the, the best architecture of their day. And I read that in, in A.D. 26, a massive temple was built in the city of Smyrna uh, for their Caesar at the time, the king Tiberius, and he became the center of emperor worship in that area, in Smyrna especially, and even some of the cities around them. And because this great temple was built, that they demanded that the people that lived in that city would worship the emperor. And they were required to come and bring their sacrifices and bring their offerings and worship emperor Tiberius as God. Of course, those that were Jewish in heart and life and the Christians knew that it was wrong to worship any God but the one true God. And so the conflicts grew steadily throughout the first century. And since the time that the church was begun, likely from the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and there were tensions there between the Christians and the Romans and the Jews because of this large temple temple that had been uh, built and... and, uh, People had been demanded to worship there. And in the midst of this city, which had all these temples and all this worship of the Roman gods and all the the Roman influence was a church, a candlestick, the candlestick at Smyrna. 
You imagine what it was like for the Christians that were there. They were in a very, very small minority. And they were receiving fire for not worshiping uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the emperor Tiberius and the Roman gods that, uh, uh, that they worshipped. And so the tensions became greater and greater throughout basically from the middle of the first century toward the end of the first century. And they were under fire from both the, the Gentiles and then we'll read also from the Jews. They were being criticized because they were considered not loyal to Rome and not loyal to the uh, to the king, to the Caesar in Rome, who demanded their worship. And, and if they would not worship, then they were discriminated against. And some of them were persecuted and some of them were martyred. And so you had on one side this demand uh, to, to worship the Roman gods. And, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, John records in these words that they also were receiving this uh, uh, tension and fighting from another source. It was from the Jews in the city. Smyrna had a large number of Jews that had migrated there over the years earlier. And there were many Jews in the city and most of those Jews had, had uh, given in to the demands of the Romans to worship the Roman gods. And they had begun to mix the religion of Judaism and the worship of Yahweh and the law and all those things. And they just mixed in the worship with other gods. And so they had lost completely their identity as Jews and they were only holding on to some of the cultural things. And Jesus saw that. And Jesus speaks to them about that. He says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus acknowledges to the church at Smyrna not only the tension from the the pagans, the Gentiles, but also the tensions that came from those that, that said they were God's people but had fallen along the way and were not worshiping Him at all. And He tells them that He sees that. Jesus sees what's going on in the church at Smyrna. Just like last week, Jesus could see what was going on in the church at Ephesus and all these churches, every one of them, as Jesus looks at him, he, he knows the pressure. He knows the problems. He knows the temptations. He knows where they have stumbled. He knows where they have stood strong. And to the church at Smyrna, he says, I see what's going on. I, I see the terrible persecution that you're under, the pressure that you're under, and the, the things that you are, you are putting up from them. On one side, you have the, the Roman mob and and they're demanding of the bringing of the sacrifice and putting it in the fire pot and the worshiping of, of the king. And, and then on the other hand, you have these Jews who also have fallen in with the Romans and, and they too are, are persecuting this small group of Christians. Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. And so Smyrna is the church of persecution. You think today, well, is Smyrna much like us here in America? And I would say, although there are some similarities and starts, Smyrna describes churches all around the world. Not, not so much right here, not yet. Maybe it will be someday. But Smyrna describes what's going on all around the world as we read about news and the persecution that happens around the world. Uh, Jesus says in verse 9, 
He says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Jesus tells them, I know what's going on. I'm watching you. I, I see the pain. I see the pressure. I see the difficulty. It just reminds me of how complete God's knowledge is of our lives and what we deal with, our challenges. And we have challenges. We have challenges in America to our Christianity and our faith. And maybe Ephesus might be even a, a deeper description of, of the challenge of the church today. Have we lost our have we lost our first love? And other descriptions about the sexual immorality in, in some of the churches and, and the worship of things and, and possessions. And, and then when you get to the, the last of the seven churches and we talk about is a church hot or cold? Or has it become lukewarm? But in all of these churches, Jesus is speaking to us as believers around the world and in the 20 first century. The first we read here is that Jesus says, I know, I know what you're going through. Jesus knows what your life is about. He knows the pressures you feel, the temptations you feel, the, the areas of immaturity that you are as a Christian. He knows that. He sees that. He cares about that. He sees the church and he has a message for each one of us in the midst of that. He sees how afflicted and impoverished the church at Smyrna was. Uh, impoverished, Smyrna was a, uh, was a wealthy city, but I believe also because of the persecution that was there, Jesus saw and could, could see how they had been persecuted and it was hard for them to make a living. And though I don't know all the details of that from the context and, and reading of history, that uh, they were being... Uh, 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 discriminated against in, in so many ways that it was hard for them to make a living. And Jesus saw that. He saw the affliction they were under. But He also tells them that you have something that you may not realize how precious it is, that you are rich in some ways. Uh, some ways that you're poor, but in other ways that you are rich. And you have something of incredible value, a faith that is real and alive and deep and holding. You have a faith that has held on to who God is and what His promises are. And I can help you through that time. And I will help you through that time. The message to Smyrna is to tell the church that when things get tough, Jesus will help us through that. When things in your life get hard, whether it has to do at all with persecution or other problems or other challenges or other temptations, this story reminds us that Jesus says, I know where you're at and I can help you through that. Whatever you have going on in your life today, if you have a challenge that's deep, remember the same God who is speaking to Smyrna is in our lives to help us, bring us through tough times, give us what we need to get through it, whether it be pers persecution or something else. Jesus acknowledges that there is suffering. There's suffering in God's people. There's suffering in the church. And he says he doesn't take that away in the, in the days of the church, but in God's infinite wisdom he has allowed suffering but he says he's going to bring it to an end he says there will be suffering for a season but he also says that I will be with you in the midst of that and I will bring you through that and you will be stronger for that 
And of course, he talks about the meaning and the value of the eternal perspective and how we see our lives in time. But God sees us for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. And he understands that we are in a time and some will go through a time of suffering and persecution. But he says, I hold all of eternity in my hand. I hold the keys to life and death, to to life and to Hades. I hold the keys to eternal life and those that persevere, those that hold on, those that find that strength to hold on, I will give them the crown of life. And he speaks of that crown in these words, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Here in this passage, Jesus gives us a little glimpse and says, some of you in Smyrna, some of you will, will actually give your lives for your faith. The reality is, is people are giving their lives all around the church today, the Christian faith. There are people in other countries that every day face the oppression, the persecution, the threat of martyrdom. And every day, people are giving their lives. And so the words that Jesus speaks to the church at Myrna speaks to them as well. Be faithful even to the point of death. Jesus says, I can give you, I can give you the strength. I can help you through that. I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, my friend Vinay in India, we've talked about persecution. And, and uh, he, he uh, is in a place where he faces the possibility. And some of his pastors and people that he works with have been persecuted. And, you know, Vinay, Vinay never says to me, pray that we are not persecuted. He doesn't say that. And we've talked about it. He says, just pray that I can hold on to my faith in the midst of persecution that comes. And so many people I've heard that from. When I've heard their stories, I've heard missionaries talk about it. I've heard of people that have traveled to our country and spoken here. And, and we've seen and heard and, and uh, just reminded the perspective of those that are persecuted off. And how God can give them a certain grace and a certain strength. And, and uh, a certain ability to hold on to their faith in the midst of that. And Jesus said, I will give you the crown of victory. Lord God, give strength and help to those that need it. Uh, Jesus said, I know how you hurt. I have to believe also when I read that, that Jesus feels that. I know that he felt it when he was here. He felt the pain of people. He wept at the death of his friend. And I have to believe that somehow Jesus feels and knows the pain of our world. I know that he had to feel it when he went to the cross and God laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. The pain and the horror of sin. Somehow Jesus, who is walking among the candlesticks, knows and hears that today. For these Jewish people, the opposition was even from some of God's people, supposedly God's people, who were not, he says. They claimed to be, but they were not. And Jesus knows that too. He knows when there's an enemy on the outside that's just trying to destroy us. And, and that exists all around us. Satan has a hook for every person. There's not a person here today that Satan isn't trying to find his hook for you to draw you away from your faith in God. And it's different for every person. But I bet if sincerely you sat down and you, you thought about and you... You prayed about and you said, God, what is it that's my biggest vulnerability or whatever it is? 
God's Spirit would bring to your heart and your mind this area of your life. So be careful. The Bible says that we should be on guard and not be unaware of the, the devil's schemes. That he is a roaring lion that is prowling around looking for someone to devour. Every single one of you today, if you're a Christian today, Satan will try to get you. And you need to be on guard against that. And say, oh Jesus, you know me. You know my needs. You know my heart. You know my life. Help me to keep my focus on you. Jesus knows our every weakness, the song says. He acknowledges the suffering of his people. And he says that suffering will last for a season. From the smallest amount of suffering to the greatest. From the open uh, abuse and torture and murder and rape and, and all the horrible things that happen in our world today. Uh, to the smallest things and some in between and some that maybe we're beginning to think and feel and, and see in our country that other places it's so much more but all of that God sees. We know that the devil will attack and we know that some will be imprisoned and some will be put to death. But God holds us all in His eternal hand and somehow His ability to bring eternal healing and make it right is a precious story. I will give you life as your victor's crown. And then He says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This morning, whoever has ears to hear of the church at Smyrna, let them let them hear. It was so true at the church at Smyrna. I said a little bit ago that John was the pastor of the, the church at Ephesus. He was considered the overseer, the bishop, not only of Ephesus, but the whole area. He was one of the last living eyewitnesses of Jesus, certainly the last living apostle, uh, as much as, as best we know. He lived a long life. Well, somewhere toward the end of the time that John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation with a vision of God. Somewhere just before that, he encountered a young man that was from the area. Might have been born in Smyrna, not sure, or Ephesus, but his name was Polycarp. And John encountered him, and Polycarp became a believer. He became a young disciple of John's. And According to a little bit of the writing and not a lot of information about this, but John and Polycarp had a very important relationship. And, and later Polycarp would mention some of the influence that John had had on him. But Polycarp was a young man, probably about 25 years old or so when the book of Revelation was written. And sometime before the book of Revelation, or maybe it could have been right after, John the Apostle chose Polycarp to be the pastor of Smyrna. And he ordained, and that is in church history, written records, uh, written down by the fathers, that John had ordained Polycarp to be uh, the pastor of Smyrna during this time of great persecution. Polycarp lived another 50 to 55 years. He became recognized as a strong preacher and leader in the church. He also was known for his writings and his expressions of theology and 
They sought him out from all over the Christian church. He went to Rome to give advice to uh, those that were in the Roman church. He became what was called and is called today an apostolic father. Three or four or five men who lived in the transition time from the last living eyewitness of Jesus, in this case John, the apostle into the second century. They kind of were handed the baton of leadership for the Christian church uh, from the last eyewitnesses of Jesus. They're called the apostolic fathers. And so Polycarp, this young man who John had befriended and he became a believer and then became a pastor and a leader, became a great leader in the Christian church in the first century. I know that most of you know who know me know that I love church history. I just love to read about church history and some of the people of church history. And Polycarp is just one of many that uh, their story is amazing. Well, Polycarp was one of those that were martyred for his faith in Smyrna in 155 A.D. And the reason we know that is that many people wrote about it. And uh, it's recorded by many uh, people in the middle of the second century of, of his life, his ministry, his testimony, his death. And it's very uh, recorded and clear that he was martyred on February the 23rd. The year, some people think it's 155 and 156, one of those two years the death of Polycarp. And since we're focused on the persecuted church in Smyrna, I want to read a passage about Polycarp. This is a book, A History of Christianity. In seminary is one of my early classes, not the earliest. Go back to that last slide. That that comes later, if you would. Um, This book, 600 pages, A History of Christianity. I read every page of it for a class in seminary. It did a lot to encourage my faith. When you read what these people wrote and what was wrote about them, written about them, incredible. The Christian faith has a depth and a history that's absolutely incredible. Sometimes we kind of go from the first century and the end of, of Paul's writings and we go to the 21st century and we don't really see maybe what's going on in the church in between or we don't know as much, but I want to tell you something. There's a depth of church history in every century of the church. And if you take time to read, if you take time, if, if you got it in you to study, you pick up to me a book like this, it will change your view of the church. It will help you to have a love for Jesus' church like he had for the church. Anyway, let me read a little bit about written in 156 A.D. under the title, The Sufferings of Polycarp. We have written to you, brethren, as to what relates to the martyrs and especially to the blessed Polycarp who put an end to the persecution having, as it were, set a seal upon it by his martyrdom. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. 
Polycarp declared, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand, to these I will cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is right. Again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beast, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with a fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, in part. And there he died in the stadium at Smyrna, burned to death. Not in my circle of influence, but all around the world are stories of Christian martyrdom. In every century. And so when I read about Smyrna, it's like it's a different world in some ways. But also a world that shows the reality that suffering is a part of the church. Fox's Book of the Martyrs traces the rise of Protestantism and the many martyrs that were a part of that. And today around the world, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. There are many organizations that help us to pray for and help to try to change situations around the world, the voice of the martyrs and others. There is a reality and presence of affliction and the real relevance to the church at Smyrna today. I read that there on the average, they said last year, 13 Christians are martyred every day somewhere around the world, individually. Um, I think the word was in isolated incidents. 13 Christians every day are put to death because they refuse to reject Christ. Tens of thousands more die in religious civil wars, some with Christianity and some with other religions. Hundreds of thousands if you include all the religions. I read, I read that on the average, 12 churches are attacked every day, every day around the world on the average. I think, wow. I do know because of my friend in India that it happens very often in India. One in eight Christians live in an area hostile to their Christian faith. I read ten, the names of ten countries that are thought to have the most persecution today. And as we pray in a few minutes, maybe God could ask you to pray for one of these countries. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea. Yemen, Nigeria, and India, and there are many others. Would you watch, watch this video with me, and then we're going to pray together, please. 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Would you stand this morning? Could I invite you to pray for maybe a country? Maybe you've read in the news or you've heard or you've heard a name today and and uh, the Lord would just lead you to pray for them. God somehow works in the prayers of His people. And we pray that He will help and touch those that need it today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You and we read this second chapter, verses 8 through 11. And You included it in your vision of the churches, and I think a reason for us today, God, that we would understand, that we would pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, and we would pray and work for justice where we can. That God, we would desire to see the gospel reach every human being on earth in every country where sin, God, and hatred prevails today that your gospel can change hearts and change lives Lord God we know they're suffering we don't always know what to say and do about it but God help us to be the church you want us to be today I pray help us God to have compassion and help us how to know how to respond in that compassion to love people Lord God, for those that have been oppressed and those, God, that have done horrible things, that they all would know who Jesus is. He would touch their lives and save them and draw them in to all of eternity through the cross where Jesus died for our sins. Every iniquity was laid on Him, God. I pray that the world would know, the world would hear the world would embrace Jesus. Help us to be faithful witnesses where we're at in our circle of influence. Help us, God, not to be distracted by things that really won't count for eternity, God. Help us to know where to be focused and how to be focused on your kingdom and your righteousness, I pray. I pray for Christians around the world. We've mentioned a few countries. I'm also thinking of China today and the Key family, these missionaries that are there, South Koreans serving the Lord in a hard place. I pray, God, for families that have come to this church and now are in Sahara, West Africa. I pray for Ali, Weiss, and his family. I pray for those that are in Malaysia today and hearing the reports of the crackdown on the church there. I pray for our sponsored child there, Lord God. 
pray God for Vinay and Josna and we know that year, year and a half ago they went through a time of terrible persecution and it wasn't physical but it was financial and trying to take the property of the church and God you brought them through that and I thank you for that I pray for Vinay and his family and those pastors in that district God mid Maharashtra some who have been beaten for their faith God touch the world I pray help us to be a church that's aware learns from your word the power of Jesus walking among the churches I pray in Jesus name Amen Amen